This is episode 25 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. All right. How's everybody doing today? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for the Investors Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. And I'll tell you what, folks, we are pumped today. Um, I'm excited for multiple reasons. First of all, we've got a guest on the show that um, I'm very excited about because this guy is probably one of the most intelligent people um, we've run across in a long time. Uh we have Toby Carlisle on our show, and Toby is going to be talking to us about Deep Value, which was a book that he wrote. Um, this book was published by uh, Wiley Finance. Um, he also wrote another book called Quantitative Value. Um, and Toby has a really unique background because he's not only an expert in asset valuation, uh, he's a former corporate advisory lawyer, which is pretty impressive in itself. Um, he worked on corporate mergers and acquisitions in a multitude of countries like China, Australia, Singapore, and many others. And his book that he wrote, uh, I'm serious, this book, I, I haven't had a book that has impressed me as much as Toby's book since I read Security Analysis. And I know some people might, um, you know, say, Preston, you say that about every book that you read. And I do, I'm usually pretty energetic about each book that I read. But um, this one was very impressive because it flies in the face of a lot of ideas and theories that people have about value investing. And he not only says these things, but he backs it up with fact after fact after fact. And he has all this quantitative data to back up his opinions and his his theories in his book. And so, Toby, uh, with, with that entry into the uh, start of the show, I just want to say thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to Stig and I about your book and just uh, helping our audience understand uh value investing at a much more profound level. Wow. Thanks very much for that very kind introduction, Preston. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. So the first question I have, uh, Toby, in a few sentences, I want you to describe uh, what your book Deep Value is all about. Um, second, and the, the follow-up to that is I'm curious to know what your uh, motivation was for writing the book. Um, it seems like you wanted to provide hard facts to support some of your theories, but was there something more to it than that in the, the reasoning behind your writing? Deep value is about the method that contrarians, uh, activist investors, private equity firms, professional investors use to value uh, companies in their entirety when they're, they um, when they're looking to take them over or uh, get on a board and sort of control the destiny of the company. Um, in the process of doing that, I sort of uh, examine this idea of mean reversion, which is the, um, the force that pushes uh, intrinsic value or price back to intrinsic value, which is, how, uh, which is one means by which value investors make their return. And uh, the other is this, uh, this idea of uh, mean reversion in fundamental business performance. So, you can see most industries, most businesses, um, most stock markets are cyclical and they'll have these periods where they have very good returns and they have these periods where they have very poor returns. And uh, if you're looking at the, the trend in earnings 
you can sometimes be fooled by that mean reversion. And uh, so the point of the book was just to say that in most instances, for most businesses, there is going to be this fundamental mean reversion. And if you can sort of anticipate the implications of that and you can get something that's cheap kind of at the bottom of its business cycle, then you get both the um, difference between the market price and the intrinsic value and you sort of catch the intrinsic value wave up and you get very good returns as a result. So it was funny because in the book, whenever you started talking about this mean reversion, um, Toby, what he does is he goes, I want to see the worst performing companies in the last three years. And then I want to see the best performing companies in the last three years based on their earnings and how much their earnings were growing or descending. And he takes the worst companies. And I think you took the 30 worst companies and then you took the 30 best companies. And then he's, he said, okay, I'm going to create a portfolio. I'm going to buy the 30 worst and the 30 best. And let's track how these companies perform over the next three years into the future. And what he found whenever he tracked these, the 30 best and the 30 worst, is that the 30 worst outperformed the 30 best by just a huge uh, margin. Um, you're talking at least over, what was it, over 10%. I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head, Toby. There's, uh, there, there's several analyses there that come from um, some research in the 80s um, uh, by DeBont and Thaler. And the idea is that if you look at the earnings per share trend over the preceding three years, and then you, you buy on T0, so you buy after the three years, and then you hold for another three years, the earnings per share of the companies that have had the greatest declines actually end up having the best performance. And the, the reverse is true for the earnings per share. So, it's fundamental analysis. So, you buy these companies that have falling earnings and then they have very good performance. So, Toby, what you're basically saying is that we don't really pick the companies that we think will perform best. We're basically looking at it through a stock screener or through simply through a formula. And we know that these will simply perform better than the stock market in general. So, that analysis um, that DeBont and Thaler did was just to show that there is some um, fundamental improvement in, on average when you're looking at uh, those three. There, is, uh, there are a variety of value metrics that you can use that have uh, phenomenally good performance, remarkably good performance for how simple they are. And really, you can use almost anything. The humble price to earnings formula works very well. Um, price to cash flow, price to any fundamental will perform very well. In quantitative value, we um, rigorously tested all of the formulas to sort of determine which one worked the best. And we found that uh, it was the enterprise multiple. And we, we tested it using uh, earnings before interest and taxes and uh, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. So that's EBITDA, EBIT and EBITDA. And the denominator there is enterprise value, which very simply is market capitalization plus the debt that you have to take on because that's what acquirers of companies, in they take on the, the liabilities of the company and then you net out of that cash, but you have to add in anything like minority interests. So, you're really looking at the full price that you pay and then you're comparing that to the operating earnings that you're getting on the other side. And we found that those two outperform when we apply some fairly rigorous analysis to it. We, so, we look in a very large universe 
and we market capitalization weight them. So it's not a phenomenon of just being very small companies outperforming. It's actually the very big ones. It does select big companies that outperform. So when I actually go to apply that formula, the, the best way to do it I have found is using this number that uh, I, I call it the acquirer's multiple. Basically, it's um, substituting uh, operating earnings, which is which is a metric that you construct from the top of the income statement down. So you take revenues, you take out cost of goods sold, and then you take out selling good uh, SGNA. Um, and the the reason that you get a better result when you take it from the top rather than the bottom is that you're missing out on any of the special items that aren't necessarily part of the operating um, business. And then if you use that metric, you're really selecting for the kind of companies that um, a large acquirer can take over. And so they tend to be they tend to perform quite well, and they also tend to attract catalysts in the form of activists and and private equity firms. You know, Toby, the thing that kept popping up into my head as I was reading your book was a lot of people are just so focused on Warren Buffett and the way that he does business. And the one person that we're really focusing on a lot these days and paying very close attention to is Ray Dalio. Um, I know I sent you an email just the other day when we were talking about something kind of off topic to what we're discussing right now. But um, Ray Dalio, from what I understand, is implementing a process that is very similar to what you're talking about here as far as using nothing more than quantitative data to make decisions in the stock market. And he's not really doing anything like Warren Buffett where he he takes a lot of this qualitative feel. And when you look at Ray Dalio's returns based on where he's at in you know his lifespan, his returns are actually more impressive than Warren Buffett's for where he's at right now um, as far as having larger returns. And to me, I'm, I was reading your book and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I really think that Ray Dalio is taking a very similar approach to what you're talking about here in, in the way that you're analyzing stocks. Would you agree with that? And I know this isn't one of the questions that we were planning on going over, but I'm very curious to know your response to that. Dalio is one of a number of guys who are quantitative in their approach. Um, I think probably the most famous is uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, or it could be any of the uh, any of the firms that sort of came out of the academic research. So LSV Asset Management is uh, Lakonashik Schleifer and Vishni who wrote one of the great papers, Contrarian Investing, which everybody should read, and I I do cover that in the book. Um, Debont and Thaler have a firm. And the reason I like O'Shaughnessy is he's been very generous sharing exactly the process that he goes through in his uh, book, What Works on Wall Street. And the idea is basically, without sort of knowing precisely what Dalio is doing, and I know that he's sort of a, um, in addition to stocks, he looks at uh, various different asset classes. And so there's, there's an um, asset allocation function to what he does, which is part of his return uh, profile, whereas Buffett's known more as a sort of a stock market investor, and so is O'Shaughnessy for that matter. O'Shaughnessy, so I'll, I'll just I'll speak to O'Shaughnessy because it, it is the same point. But he, O'Shaughnessy has sort of looked at all of these different um, fundamental metrics for analysing the st- stocks, and he's also looked at some momentum metrics. Um, momentum is a very powerful force. I don't use it um, in my firm, but there is quite a lot of academic research that shows that it does work. Momentum is basically price performance over a period of time. So the most popular is 26 weeks, but it, which is half a year, but you can also use 52 weeks. And it seems to be slightly uncorrelated to value. So you get combined together, they get very good returns. So I assume that Dalio is using some combination of value and momentum to generate his returns. 
All right. Well, let's go to, uh, we do have the next question here. Let's go to this one. So Toby, uh, Warren Buffett has a really famous quote and the quote goes like this. It says, when a management with a reputation for brilliance tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, it's the reputation of the business that remains intact. And so I guess my question is this, because you provide hard facts in your book that shows that the really ugly businesses, when you measure return on invested capital, the ones that have had a really bad past performance are the ones that are actually maturing and turning into a much better investment uh, over a short number of years right after you would have selected it. So uh, can you describe this to our audience, uh, this idea and how you came across this contrarian point of view? Let me first say that I don't necessarily disagree with um, Buffett's quote there. That I, I do think that the management um, management is is sort of tied to the underlying performance of the business, and this is one of the big differences between Buffett and Graham. So Benjamin Graham was Benjamin Graham wrote Security Analysis, and he was um, Buffett's teacher um, and one-time employer, uh, lifelong friend, and. Uh, Buffett says that he's sort of 75% Graham, the other 25% is Phil Fisher. But he obviously, he, he called one of his sons uh, Graham, so he's got a huge uh, regard for, for Benjamin Graham. One of the points that Graham makes in security analysis is that when you look at a business, it's very difficult to separate out whether it's in fact a very good management or whether it's just a business that's enjoying a particularly good period. And he says that if you're looking at that and saying that's a great management what you're missing is the fact that you, you, you're potentially double counting. That's, that's the way he describes it. And Buffett, Buffett's big departure is that he has come along and said, well, there are these managements that are worth paying up for because of the way that they behave. And the two things that you want from management is this sort of relentless focus on the moat and maintaining that very high return on invested capital by doing so. And um, you, you you, so you keep the return very high, but you also have to look after the capital that's invested in the business. So you don't allow too much cash to build up on the balance sheet. You're very careful with the acquisitions that you make. You pay out a dividend when it's warranted. You buy back stock when it's cheap. And to the extent that they don't do those things, they're sort of destroying the intrinsic value of the business. So that's one of the points that I make in the book that um, often activists and private equity firms, the simplest way that you can improve the intrinsic value of a company is when you come in and you find that they're not performing that capital allocation function properly. So, there might be two elements. There might be the sort of operator function of the management, which is running the business, and then there's the capital allocation function. And to the extent that they're not doing that, that's an obvious place where activists and private equity firms add value. And that's where you see, and you even mentioned this in your book, where a guy like Carl Icahn comes in and just unlocks that value that's just stored on that balance sheet. And he comes in, he he can see it there, and he just basically hits the management over the head and and <laughs> makes them unlock it. And it's it's a pretty amazing story that you had in the book about Carl Icahn, because a lot of that stuff I'd never read before is really good. Uh, go ahead, Stig. So, uh, Toby, I uh, I came to think of a thing here because how does tax play a role? Um, if you if you pick stocks like Warren Buffett, you have this compounding, uh, the compounding effect, which is clearly uh, very powerful. And this is one of the key uh, things about you know finding wonderful businesses. And even during you know, bad times, you know they don't have to pay the capital gains. Uh, I might be wrong, but using let's call it your approach, um, I guess that you will wait until the, those stocks will return to the intrinsic value, and then you will have to liquidate them and to, you know, to incur the capital gains tax. So, um, what are your thoughts on that? 
I, uh, I don't think that one is any better than the other. I just think that the, the part of the reason that I wrote the book is that Buffett is so successful and he's been so generous with his um, writings over 50 years and he's spoken publicly at every uh, Berkshire general meeting and he's interviewed all the time. So, Buffett's method of value investment is the sort of way that everybody thinks about value investing. But really the targets of Buffett's targets are so few and far between. They're a very small portion of the market, those sort of companies that can sustain that high return on invested capital with the moat. Really, the vast majority of companies are cyclical and they are subject to their to the forces in their industry that are sort of exogenous, external to their own businesses. So, I don't necessarily think that one is better than the other. I just think that you have such a larger universe to work with if you work with these companies that are a bit more cyclical or subject to those forces. So, that is one of the problems with um, investing this way is that you are more likely to incur capital gains tax. But that's also true of many of the Buffett companies do, they don't really, you you can't remain invested in them for many of them for sort of 50 years. Often they're sort of a five or 10 year proposition and then they just run out of growth potential or the market becomes saturated. It can be any sort of number of those those issues. Um, with the companies that I look at, I'm still thinking in terms of three to five year to 10 year periods. It's just that I'm trying to get them really out of business and idea and then they work through those issues. And so, they have a pretty long runway where they're, they're getting back to the peak so how do you determine the the growth potential and and the reason why i'm asking is that um and please correct me if i'm wrong but you're not looking so much at the quality of those companies and you're not so much looking in terms of say your circle of competence you're merely looking at numbers and what is uh, might be at the bottom of the business cycle so how do you determine when to sell well the, often often these things that that decisions made for you by uh by some sort of catalyst occurring, but when when it reaches, either it reaches intrinsic value or you find a better opportunity that's at a bigger discount, that tends to be the way that that the the portfolios operate. Um, The the question, I think, and um, the point that I make in the book, I use use Joel Greenblatt's magic formula as um, as the means of describing this point, but Greenblatt has this magic formula where he looked at Buffett's letters and he said, how can we quantify this? And if we quantify it, you know, will we get good returns? Because we don't have Buffett's genius for finding these moats and there's no sort of real statistical way of finding these moats. So, or certainly not looking at the financial statements. So, uh, he said, well, there are two things. He looks for quality, which he defines as a return on invested capital, return on tangible capital. And we look at value, which he defines as earnings before interest and taxes on enterprise value, what I call the EBIT enterprise multiple. And then he just simply ranks every stock on each factor and then he sums the rankings. So, the best combination of both is a magic formula stock and then he buys a portfolio of 30 rebalances on an annual basis. And that outperforms the market. We've independently tested that in quantitative value and it's been tested a variety of other times outside of um, us and it, it definitely outperforms. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. 
Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at ndtco.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's ndtco.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. And Toby, the thing that I was really focusing in on was the the time period that you had, the three years before the the T0 mark and then three years after. Were you really seeing that you got the best results over that six-year window? Did you guys play around with expanding that to maybe an eight-year window or a four-year window? Like, What gave you the best return? Was it six years? Is that why you used that in the book? That's the DeBont and Thaler um, research, which we didn't test specifically for Windows, but we did look at holding periods. So, we, sorry, we looked, at, we looked at holding periods and an average of years. So, in order to select the stock. So you look at the cheapest on um, one year's of earn- one year's earnings, two years of earnings, average of three years. And I think we went out to eight years. Look, this is in quantitative value. And we found that there's really no advantage to expanding the, the, 
the, the number of years that we considered, which I found really surprising because that yeah. was one of the things that I was expecting that that would be a big advantage because there aren't many people who sort of go to that. And when they're analyzing companies to the extent that they're thinking about it, they're looking at only a few years of financial statements. So I thought that would be a big advantage. It turns out it's not. And so it's something that oh. it sort of perplexed me at the time and I've thought about it a lot since. Um, the reason is that when you look at the companies that it selects on a one-year basis, I should just say you can't, there, there were, you know, it might be that five years is a better average than six years wasn't very good and then seven years was quite good. So there was just, there may have been ones that outperformed an individual year, but there was no sort of rhyme or reason to it. So it's just, they were just sort of random. So how about on the, on the backside after the, after it's selected, you had in the book that three years later, and whenever I looked at that chart where it, it basically, they all come back into a normalized state, it was usually about a three year period. Did you find that three years of holding usually brought it back or, or if it didn't, it was just kind of an outlier. Was that three-year period pretty common or did you sh- try shortening that and, and seeing how that worked? You definitely continue to get, so holding for a year gets you the bulk of the return because that um, the gap between intrinsic value and, and price is widest at that point. And then it sort of gets closer and closer and the return um, disappears a little bit because that the, the discount is not so great. And when you're, um, this is one of the things that that I tried to get across in deep value, the discount from intrinsic value really is the driver of returns. The bigger the discount, the better the returns. Yeah. So the, as the discount diminishes, the return diminishes too, but you, you still get it. I think out to five years, I think out to seven years, I think you, you're still getting pretty good out performance out as far as that. So the key would really be, what is my capital gains tax? And let me get past the largest hurdle of that. Let's say the capital, the biggest capital gains would be a year. So you'd want to sell it and basically re-baseline everything after that one year mark, because that's where you really move completely into a different capital gains bracket here in the US at least. Um, is that what you're doing on, on your business individually? It tends to be one year and one day. That, that gives you the best... Um, combination of capital gains and and tax uh, diminution. All right, uh, Stig, you got the next question. So, uh, Toby, at your talk at Google in November uh, 2014, and just a quick shout out for that talk, we will definitely uh, link to that in the show notes. That was a fantastic and really inspiring talk. Um, you can't see this, guys, but Toby is almost blushing right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and I want to throw in Glenn Samia was the person who sent us the link to your talk at Google. And that's uh, we would just want to thank Glenn for uh, giving us that handoff. But go ahead, Stig. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Uh, no worries. So, uh, Toby, let me <laughs> go over the question again. So at your talk uh, at Google, um, you state that it acquires multiple, which you talked about briefly before, is widely used to find the hidden value of businesses. You also find that it outperforms other key ratios such as uh, free cash flow yield, gross uh, profit yield, and book to market value. Um, what is the acquired multiple? If you have to, uh, you know, define it real fast, and why does it outperform the other metrics? The acquirer's multiple is operating earnings on enterprise value, which is the full price that anybody pays for a business. So, the extent that you're valuing a company, you're always the, the enterprise multiple is the price that you're paying, and operating earnings is the income stream that you're really getting that you can then either direct to um, capital allocate. You can allocate it to dividends or um, buying back stock or investing in other businesses. So, um, 
it, it's really telling you how much you're actually paying for the business and what you're getting in, in return. It's probably the best, cleanest uh, analysis of that, which, which is why I think it performs so well and it has been shown to do that empirically. Why it outperforms free cash flow, gross profit yield, I'm not entirely sure. I think that was a little bit surprising because if you come from the Buffett um, and a lot of the Buffett investors, what they're really looking for is that very high free cash flow yield. Well, not necessarily an extremely high one. They're, rather, they're looking for a sort of a, a solid free cash flow yield, maybe 10% plus with some growth, maybe 5%. And so combined, you're getting about a 15% return. And then they want that sort of very stable over a very long period of time. Whereas the deep value guys are kind of looking for a really fat return in the, in the very short term. And... Um, the only way that you're going to get that is with these really ugly businesses. So, uh, so, so I, I th- and Toby, I just want to highlight for people because um, when you're thinking about risk, the reason you have a lot of these Warren Buffett people like myself that's that's managing their risk based off of a very stable, predictable trend line of this free cash flow. You're managing your risk because you're buying thirty or call it fifty companies that are all in this very deep. Uh, category and it, let's say five of those businesses fail, you make it up through the other businesses uh, that have had these very large returns because they've performed so poorly and they've been penalized in the market. And that's how he's managing his risk. I just wanted to throw that out there so the audience understands that you are managing your risk, but you're doing it in a different manner. I I do I do some of the Buffett investing as well. So, but I I just um, the Buffett stocks are really much rarer than. The other ones. So, and in, for those ones, I'm always looking for that sort of. I want 10% free cash flow yield. Um, you know, going out two or three years, so I can see it occurring two or three years time with about a five percent growth rate, pretty stable returns, good capital allocation. You know, that's a very that's a traditional Buffett style stock. For the other ones, I look at 20 positions, and um, and you, you you're sort of getting. You need to get more for the risk that you're taking on there. So, do you get more in terms of an enterprise multiple? And the multiples that I'm looking at are, you know, I want to buy it three times or at four times. So, that's like a 25% to 33% yield. You know, that's a really fat yield. That thing is ugly. <laughs> and you, 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 at any given time in the business cycle, whatever is the scariest thing is, is the sort of thing that you're buying. So, you know, right yeah. now it'd be oil and gas. Yeah. It's probably iron ore miners. You know, there's no secret to this. It's you know, or multi-level marketing, you know, the, the sicker you feel when you look at the portfolio, the, the better the portfolio is going to go. <laughs> All right, Toby. So uh, many investors look at the PE ratio and use that to quickly determine the expected yield of an investment. Uh, continuing with our previous question, if you could quantify how much better the performance was when you were using the acquirer's multiple uh, versus just the standard PE ratio, and then also talk about uh, Joel Greenblatt's uh, magic formula where that kind of fits into this, uh, what would you say the performance might be for just like an index of stocks as far as the uh, the yields that you quoted in the book? When we looked at uh, the very large capitalization universe, so we looked at uh, companies with a market capitalization bigger than $1.4 billion as at December 31, 2011, because that was the, we wrote it in 2012. And um, we market capitalization weighted the, the positions in the portfolio, which you wouldn't ordinarily do when you construct a portfolio, you either equal weight or you'd weight towards your best opportunities. So the most undervalued opportunities. 
So we did that because that um, penalizes bigger companies, and it, and and it there are often little little ratios that sort of work to find small stocks that aren't really particularly good at outperforming the market. But we found um, it it gave us about on average uh, compound over a sort of uh, thirty two year period about fifteen or sixteen percent per year. And the PE ratio, from recollection, I'm not entirely sure, but it was sort of around 11 or 12%. So it's a fairly substantial margin over, um, over 32 years. It's an enormous outperformance. All right, Stig, you got the next one. So, uh, Toby, how have the hard facts about pure quantitative models to find the best stocks changed your own approach to your stock selection? So when you're investing, there are two, I, I like to think there are sort of two broad approaches to investment. One is the Buffett style business owner investment method where um, you look at the business and it, you, you look at the qualitative factors in the business, what's going to allow it to outperform, to protect its returns on invested capital. Um, you look at uh, management's um, attitude to capital allocation as evidenced by what they've done in the past and perhaps to the extent that you can talk to them what they tell you that they're going to do in the future. The other approach is to sort of look at it like um, like the statistician or the casino owner, maybe. It's kind of like a probabilistic approach. And so the quantitative approach is to the st- statistical probabilistic end. And in that approach, um, you look at a, a period of, of data beforehand and then you – to protect yourself from sort of all of these little biases that can creep in, you, you have to approach it. I think you, you come up with an idea that you test. So does value work? It seems to, when we test that using any number of different ratios, you find a good ratio and then you have to apply that um, without fear or favor to the stocks that it selects. Because what you'll find is that it pulls up all of these things that they don't ever look like a really good idea. And what you'll find um if you go through and try to cherry pick those ideas out is that you tend to underperform the screen. And the reason is um, fairly well-known region of uh, research, a little less well-known in in investing circles, but quite well-known outside. It's this idea that experts uh, tend to underperform these simple statistical models. And the reason is that they use their uh, discretion to sort of override the model too often. And that's what what is known in the research as the broken leg problem. So the idea is you have some sort of um, algorithm that tells you that Peter goes to the theatre on a Friday night and you learn, you're trying to predict, will he go this Friday night? And you learn that he's got a broken leg. So surely you're able to factor that into your algorithmic model to determine that he's not in fact going to go to the theatre. And the answer is no. And that's really surprising. And the reason that you can't use it is because you find way too many broken legs. You want to apply it more often than, um, than the model would. And so the model has this error rate, but it's a known error rate, whereas experts seem to have this sort of, when they're making decisions on an ad hoc basis, they have this unknown fluctuating error rate. So what they've found in these lots of different um, unrelated fields is that the statistical model acts as the ceiling on performance and anything that you do to the screen sort of underperforms it. So when I'm when I'm in the when I'm in the quantitative mode, uh, I just run what is in the model and I put that in the portfolios. 
So I loved in the book. So I'm just going to add on to what Toby said. But in the book, he shows that in Ben Graham's security analysis, he talks about um, this idea of using your own intellect, like using the screener to bring you to a, a batch of stocks and then to basically use your own intelligence and your own qualitative field to extract the ones that you think would be the right ones. And so then Toby talks about how Ben Graham basically changed his mind very close to his own death. I think the year was like maybe 1975 or 76 that Graham came out openly and basically came back on what he had put in security analysis and said, you know, I don't really necessarily know that I agree with this anymore. I think you should just take the batch of stocks that come up from the screener and you just invest in those from from what you got and that you don't use your own biases to select the right ones, because I think that's going to cause you to actually underperform. And so Toby puts that in the book and he talks about how ahead of his time Ben Graham was even right up to his death to be able to identify something like that without having access to computers to basically validate that extra 2% gain that you actually get that Toby has statistically proven in his book. Um, So with all that said, I'm going to go to the next question. So if you could only pick one investor outside of Buffett, Munger, and Graham that people should study, who would that be? Um, And do you have any books that maybe that person would have wrote or anything like that? I've got to give a shout out to Joel Greenblatt because I... I've learned so much from um, Greenblatt's work, starting with his very first book, which was um, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which I think, and everybody says this, but I'm going to say it again, and I I feel a bit bad doing it, but it's a terrible name for a really, really good book. And uh, that's a, it's a sort of, it's all about special situations, which is how uh, Greenblatt ran his uh, fund initially. And it's just such an awesome book. When I was a when I was a corporate advisory lawyer, I read that, and it just made perfect sense to me. And so that was the way I started out as an investor. In two thousand and six, I found his um, little book that beats the market, and and that was a sort of similarly eye opening experience uh, when I read that because because uh, I had looked at what Buffett did, but his his sort of business analysis was just too hard for a guy who. Like I was, who's sort of a, I'm a corporate advisory lawyer, but I think in terms of um, the financial filings and writing those filings, raising money and buying shares, like that. So that was the the actual business part of it. I just didn't have the tools to to analyze. And so when I saw that Greenblatt was saying that it could be done um, in a quantitative fashion, that sort of appealed to me as something that I could do. Um, One very interesting thing. that I saw pretty soon after that was a, a paper written by James Montier, who's another guy who I just love to death. But, um, Montier was the guy who, who did the analysis of the little book that beats the market initially. And he said, if you, um, if you take away the quality metric, you actually do better, which is completely counterintuitive, completely counterintuitive. And so that was one of those things that I thought maybe there is something more to this, this is an area that I can study really closely. And so that was the analysis that we did in the first in quantitative value. And that was really the genesis for deep value to dive into that idea and explore why it is that um, not looking at the quality or ignoring the quality factor, why that could lead to not only better returns, but better risk adjusted returns, which makes no sense at all. And I think it's this, it's this idea of mean reversion that the quality is re- the quality factor that Greenblatt uses, the return on invested capital, is really selecting for those companies right at the pinnacle of their business cycle and ignoring it, you do a little bit better. Yeah. 
Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. Up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business. And they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right. Back to the show. So, Toby, I can't help but wondering, now you're saying that we don't have to look too much about quality, but say that uh, through our stock screen and we found um, 10 great companies uh, based on the acquired multiple, do you make any kind of analysis in terms of 
um, it doesn't look like that they will uh, make money next year because they have something's happening. Or is it just pure numbers? Uh, is that what you mean by when saying quality? Or is, do you also, yeah, again, look for the next 12 months? There are lots of different... Qu- quality is... Uh, I, use, I, I try to keep on defining it as return on invested capital because it can mean a variety of different things. Um, in a business quality sense, if you're Buffett, he doesn't really care what the return on invested capital was last year. He's looking at a company that's able to sustain a high return on invested capital in the future. And he's using his sort of phenomenal mind and decades and decades of experience looking at these companies to determine which is which are the ones that can do that and which are the ones that can't. So I'm not talking necessarily about that method of investing. I'm just saying that when you're when you're looking at um, the deep value ones. So one quality metric that you might like to look at is earnings quality. It, it it's definitely you you paid to find companies that are actually generating earnings that are actually generating cash flow that matches the accounting earnings. So any company that's um, not got matching cash flows for its for its accounting earnings over a period of time is not a is not a good company. And that's a sort of and that's an early earnings manipulation indicator, and that's something that could potentially become a fraud if they're. So you want to avoid those companies for the most part. But the thing is, when you're buying these uh, operating these acquirers multiple cheap on an acquirers multiple basis, the reason that the uh, metric works so well is that it is looking for a very cash-rich balance sheet. It sort of favours companies that have got a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So you're not paying a lot for the actual residue of the business that you're buying. So you're not paying a lot for the market capitalization. There's probably no debt there. And then there's very strong operating earnings in relation to that residue that you're actually paying for. So you're sort of already self-selecting for the kind of things that they've got plenty of runway if they've got cash on the balance sheet so they can withstand a down period, and then they perform quite well at the other side. Because the assets yeah. are all liquid at that point. Uh, go ahead, Stig. Yeah, and, and just one thing to say. Uh, I just checked uh, Toby's website before the interview, and he's going through this formula. So uh, if you think it's right, quite hard to understand, it requires multiple. We're talking about cash. We're talking about liabilities. I think the best uh, thing is really to to go into Toby's site and take a look at his formula where he explains like how he derives this number. Um, so I just want to put that in. Acquirersmultiple.com, A-C-Q-I-R-E-R-S, multiple.com. Um, so uh, real fast, just so people understand, when you're talking acquires multiple, so if you were a guy like Carl Icahn and you can go in and buy a very large chunk of a business, he's not looking at the market capitalization, which is basically your share price times the number of shares that are outstanding. He's not looking at that number because that's not really telling him what he'd have to pay to own the business. And that's a big misconception that a lot of people have. What what is the real number is this acquires number that Toby's referring to, um, and that's your that's your EV or your enterprise value. Okay, and that's where you're taking that market cap that everyone thinks is the number they've got to pay. You're adding in the debt and the minor interest and the preferred stock and things like that, and then you're subtracting out the cash, and that's giving you the real number that you'd have to have if you were going to buy every share of the business. Okay, so he's saying using that compared to the earnings before uh, income tax. Is is a is a much better representation of the PE ratio than the PE ratio. So that's what he's saying in all this. But anyway, uh, Toby, I think that was our last question. Um, I just want to turn it over to you. If people want to learn more about you or your book or your websites, um, how can they find out more about you? And whatever you tell us, we'll make sure we have in the show notes so people can access it quicker. I have 
uh, a blog called greenbacked.com, which is G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D.com. Um, and I'm, I put all of my research up there. There's, there's 800 kind of posts going back to 2008 when I started writing it publicly. And uh, you can sort of see uh, all of the research that I've canvassed. Then, of course, there's deep value and quantitative value where we've got all of the research together in a sort of coherent fashion and written about it. So it sort of makes sense. And um, then I have a website, acquirersmultiple.com, where I just I run the screen. It's updated every 15 minutes and it will just show you the best opportunities in a, in a very large capitalization universe and in all capitalizations, so all investable, I call it, which is sort of the largest two thirds of US stocks and then small and micro cap. And uh, I have another service called Singular Diligence, which is a research service looking at um, looking for Buffett-style stocks. So we we focus on a single stock every month, and then we write twelve thousand words about the business uh, across uh, nine articles. And where there's lots of charts showing the very important ratios or the most important relationships for that business, and we produce that once a month. And so they're sort of best for buy and hold investors. Absolutely amazing. All right. So this is the point in the show where we're going to play a question from a member of our audience. And this week, we're going to play a question from Stephen McNeil. And we're also going to invite Toby to uh, help us answer Stephen's question. So here's Stephen's question right now. Hi, my name is Stephen, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. Uh, My question is, is there ever a time where a high P.E. ratio, say 30 or 40 or higher, is justifiable to the value investor? Does a number this high signify too much speculation, or can a higher P.E. ratio sometimes be okay? Thank you. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for the question, and uh, we're going to have Toby uh, take it away. That's a great question. I, I'm very happy to take that. So, I, I know lots of value guys and most of my friends who are value investors running little firms, or uh, they tend to be Buffett-style guys. And uh, we have these debates all the time. So, it's kind of interesting to, to talk to somebody about their process. So, my process, like I was saying before, if I run the, if I run the model and I look at the companies that are in the model, I feel sick because they're you know, if you're buying oil and gas, that's just a terrible idea at the moment. I don't know where oil and gas oil is, but you know, it could it could be it could just as easily be cut in half again from where it is now. And I know that Dan Loeb came out yesterday and said that it's just all the tourists who are buying the oil and gas companies. So <laughs> I'm a tourist buying oil and gas companies. So that's my process that I just ignore the businesses that are in there and just buy them and don't worry about it. His pro, so this friend of mine who's a Warren Buffett style guy, his process is he goes through and he does his full valuation and then he doesn't look at the implied PE of his intrinsic value calculation because frequently he will say that the, and he, he gave me an example of something that was on 40 times earnings and he said, if I looked at that and I saw that the implied PE was 40 times, then there's just no way that I could buy that company because that's way too high. So, his little trick is not to look at the implied PE. So, <laughs> I think the answer is that, yes, you absolutely can buy those companies if, um, if the valuation is warranted. Now, as a deep value guy, I'm sickened any time I hear a number that high, but he definitely doesn't. And, you know, it's, it, I think if you would look at 
you can always provide the example of a company that would have a high PE that then shoots into the stratosphere even further, like Apple, for example. You go back into like the 2003 timeframe, somewhere around in there, where whenever they really started taking off and people were trading them higher, I think it was maybe 2004 or five or whatever. But um, that would be an example would, that would be an outlier to a lot of the stuff that we're talking. But I think your research is done on a large quantity or volume of um, data points and the data points definitely prove that a higher PE ratio performs much worse than a lower one. So I think it really depends on your approach. If you're buying onesies and twosies and you think that you have the acumen like Warren Buffett to go ahead and, and find that diamond in the rough that's that's a great business that might not have uh, people really looking at the value, the hidden value that's actually there through competitive advantage and stuff, well then you know go ahead and do that. But um, if you're investing across an index of stocks or a, a larger portfolio, um, I think Toby's book would really be eye-opening for a lot of people when they look at uh, a high P.E. ratio type pick. The, the other point to make, too, is that um, when I'm looking at that on an acquirer's multiple basis, I don't actually look at the – I don't know whether there actually are any earnings that are falling to the bottom of the income statement there. So, it's entirely possible that they have quite a good operating earnings figure and it's just eaten up through some other uh, part of the income statement. And so, the number that falls to the bottom is not really representative of the operating earnings that are coming in. So, it might, even though it's cheap, it might be three or four times on an acquirer's multiple basis. It could be because the E is so small that it could be 40 times or it might just be, you know, the, it might be ref. If you, if you look on your Excel spreadsheet and there are no earnings, you get the, the hash ref that's how I know it's going to be a good one when I get the riff for the, for the PE number. Uh, Toby, I got a question for you. So have you ever spent much time looking at the look through earnings piece of Berkshire Hathaway and trying to find other businesses that have that piece of it, that look through earnings piece? Because I think a lot of people misvalue Berkshire Hathaway simply because they do not understand look through earnings. I haven't spent a lot of time looking at Berkshire's look through earnings. Uh, I'm interested though. What's what, so? What, what's the analysis so, that you're doing? So there? here's the here's the idea. Um, whenever I was looking at the the cash flow of Berkshire Hathaway, um, the the amount of money that shows up on the businesses that he doesn't have a controlling share in. So Coca Cola is a perfect example. The only money that actually shows up and that's reportable on his income statement is the dividends that are paid. But whenever you look at the the actual earnings that Coca Cola is making, it's it's on the magnitude of basically taking that dividend payment and probably multiplying it by three um, as to the real earnings or the look through earnings that Coca-Cola is really making. He doesn't have to list that anywhere on his uh, balance sheet or income statement. Okay. Now it'll show up eventually on his equity line of his balance sheet as unrealized gains. But when people are trying to look at the value and they're forecasting future cash flows, I would imagine 99.9% of the people out there do not include that extra money that's not being shown up anywhere until it actually materializes. So what I what I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to do more research on is I'm trying to 
understand, look through earnings for other businesses outside of uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Because whenever I look at Berkshire Hathaway's reported earnings, their their PE ratio, like Berkshire right now might be, uh, I don't know, like a 17 or something like that. When you account for look through earnings, its PE goes down dramatically to maybe uh, a 12 or maybe an 11. And that's something that I think everybody misses the boat on. And I think that's why Berkshire Hathaway has continued to be traded at such a low multiple uh, when you look at like the price, the book and things like that. Um, But I think if people actually understood, look through earnings, they would see a lot more value in businesses that are similar to Berkshire Hathaway as far as holding companies. Um, So I'm trying to find a person out there that A, understands what I'm talking about. And I can see by your reaction, both you and Stig are totally catching what I'm talking about. You guys understand what I'm saying. But I just haven't had the right person to um, have the quantitative analysis, the skills that you have with uh, obviously in your book to kind of dig into this and and discover more about it. So um, maybe it's something we can talk about offline. But uh, I just wanted to bring that up because most people I talk to look at me like I've got crabs crawling on my ears whenever I talk about that kind of stuff. But (laughs) it's a sum of the parts style analysis where you're looking at the um, the underlying businesses that the business that you're buying, the company that you're buying holds. So I, I can think of uh, uh, AGCO is one at the moment. It's cheap on an acquirer's multiple basis and it's got uh, an, an Indian um, subsidiary that's not included at all in that calculation. And so it's a lot cheaper than it looks. Those are the sort of things that deep value guys love to find because they're, um, you know, that's a business that's saleable, that has some value there that is not at all included in um, everything that's visible in the financial statements. So, yeah, I, I think that's a great analysis. It, it's it's really interesting because it's a shortfall of gap. It really is. It's an accounting issue where because it's a non-controlling uh, share of a business, he doesn't have to report it. And that's really where the gap kind of falls. And I think a lot of people miss the mark. Um, and when you look at Berkshire, I mean, he has such a large amount of his business is in a non-controlling share of all these other businesses. I want to say it's in excess of a hundred billion dollars for Berkshire, which has, you know, um, I mean, that's what one third of its overall market capitalization value is all in a, in a non-operational uh, subsidiary business. And so when you would, let's just say that the mark is a hundred billion dollars and his dividends on that hundred billion would probably be around the 3 billion mark. Okay. I would argue that there's probably another six to seven billion dollars that he's actually making that he doesn't have to report anywhere or show up because they're non-operational subsidiaries. So there's a lot of value there that no one's seeing. And I think that's why you see it's priced the book at like one point three or whatever it is right now. But anyway, Toby, thank you so much for answering uh, the question from our uh, member from the audience. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I'm telling you, I will treasure this book. I am like really enjoying this book. It'll be one of the ones that I keep on my shelf uh, right next to security analysis. And it's causing me to really rethink a lot of the different things that I'm doing. And I, it's going to give me some opportunities to, t- to test some new stuff out. So uh, everyone in our audience, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we're going to send a free signed copy of the Warren Buffett accounting book to Stephen, And we're also going to send a free signed copy of our book to uh, Glenn for recommending uh, Toby for coming on the show today. So Toby, thank you so much. And we'll uh, see everybody next week. 
Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.